Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in mobile home park broker and owner, Mr. Coleman Bubis of Sunstone Real Estate Advisors. Before we dive in, I want to ask you all a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with the review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Coleman is a founding partner of Sunstone REA, and he has been instrumental to the firm's successful completion of brokerage, capital placement, and consulting assignments. He is also a founding partner of Sunstone Mortgage Capital, a sister company of Sunstone, started in 2013, and he also owns a few mobile home parks himself. Uh, prior to founding Sunstone, Coleman worked at Marcus and Millichap, focusing on brokerage of mobile home park properties. Uh, Coleman assisted clients with fine-tuning their property disposition and acquisitions, and also helping them with their investment strategies. Coleman, welcome to the show. Andrew, good to see you, my friend. I appreciate you having me on and uh, always good to get out into the interwebs and help people learn about uh, mobile home investing. So appreciate you having me on and look forward to catch it up. Yes, sir. Would you mind starting out by just telling our listeners your story and how you got into uh, manufactured housing? Yeah, I think like a lot, of, uh, a lot of people, sort of dumb luck brought me into manufactured housing. I started fresh out of school at Marcus and Millichap. And, you know, there was no one else kind of at that time competing for the MH business in, uh, in the Midwest for the firm. Some other guys obviously, you know, started to, to creep in, but I just didn't want to compete with everyone else in the office, even though I really had no knowledge at that time of anything about manufactured housing. So dumb luck there. And, um, you know, just kind of hit the phones and cold called and started to try to develop business for the team, which was, uh, you know, a very difficult sort of proposition at 21, 22 years old, trying to call guys who own mobile home parks and convince them that they should let me sell them for them. So that was certainly a time of uh, ramen and not many, uh, <laughs> not many dollars made, but it was a good learning experience and uh, it eventually started to get a little bit of traction. And in 2010, formed Sunstone with uh, some other partners, Bob and Whalen, and ultimately uh, been in business now for a little over 11 years. And we've we've brokered in excess of a, a billion six of mobile home parks. So it's wow. been a, it's been a long ride, but it's been a fun one, and certainly uh, learned a lot since that first cold call versus uh, my latest ones. Yeah, and when was that? When you started at Marcus and Millichap? I was in 2004. 2004. So you've seen this industry, you know, pre 2008. And I love talking with guys that have been in the business that long. I mean, what can you tell us about, you know, the recession and how mobile home parks and the whole industry fared during that time? Yeah, it was a little bit different of a recession, shall we say, than what we've seen with the COVID pandemic. At that time, you know, I definitely uh, knew enough to be dangerous, but you know, you look back at that and there were some incredible opportunities to capitalize on, uh, 
on mobile home park acquisitions. And for a lot of reasons is, you know, the biggest one being that the liquidity in the market just really kind of seized up and there wasn't still the outlets for debt like there were through COVID with Fannie and Freddie still being actively involved. So, you know, people with cash or very strong banking relationships really, you know, were able to buy some what I would call value deals and they weren't value based upon, you know, the in-place cap rate, so to say. They were, they were value based upon, you know, limited cash flow and um, what I would call replacement replacement cost type acquisitions. So there were some great things there, but I think, you know, the two things that happened then that were a little bit different this go around were the liquidity, the liquidity issues for financing communities and homes at that time. The other thing is, is, you know, as you know, the business has changed a lot in the last uh, 20 years, just in terms of the amount of capital and requirements for kind of keeping properties full with a home sales and infill program, whether you're doing used or new homes, that was really, I think, one of the other issues is like liquidity wasn't there, values were down significantly, people were losing properties to the banks, but also operations were probably, you know, a bit looser at that point where you didn't have to be as actively involved in, in home sales. And a lot of operators were to that regard, undercapitalized on so the home safe problem. Because at that point, a lot of people did lose their jobs and lose their homes. This go around, obviously, the you know unprecedented fiscal stimulus and uh, liquidity that remained through some of the agency lenders has has changed kind of the go around. But those are some just initial thoughts on the differences. And uh, you know, I think people that bought assets in those uh, 09, 010, 11 years have done incredibly well if they uh, could fill them. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, geez, what I what I would have given to been in the business at, at that time with a, a boatload of cash. <laughs> it would have. Uh, it was. It was a rare. It was a rare opportunity, and um, you know, people that there were some people that took very good advantage of that, and, and good for them. And you know, it was. Uh, it was. It was an interesting time to be a broker because we certainly went from uh, one set of clients, which was more private type clients. And the business plan kind of altered to, you know, lenders at that point, because no one else really was looking to transact assets at that time. Yeah. Wow. And and Coleman, I know you, you guys own and operate some parks yourself. When did you guys, you know, come into being owner operators as well? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I, uh, I certainly uh, grew up dreaming of owning real estate and uh, I never, really dreamed it would be manufactured housing. And, um, you know, ultimately I think buying a few properties was, uh, was something that I wanted to do for myself, just having dreams to own real estate. And, um, you know, I really do like the business in terms of like trying to better communities and fix properties up and feel like, um, you know, you've, you took something that wasn't great and, and you made it better by the, by the, uh, sort of dollar infusion and investment there. So um, I bought my first property in 2014, and I uh, it was kind of a random luck. Someone just forwarded me an email. A local a local broker out in Nevada was selling it, and uh, lucky enough to purchase that property. And certainly uh, made every mistake in the book as far as managing an asset from you know manager theft to just learning the construction trades and sort of underneath and operational efficiencies because operating is a, it's a very tough business and there's a lot to learn and a lot of 
wrong ways to do things. And, you know, you got to kind of just roll your sleeves up and get involved in it. But it's certainly, uh, I would say, harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that, uh, that comment. You know, maybe this would, would complement that, you know, what, what do you think is the toughest hurdle in the business? You know, I think that's going to be different for every person because there's certain things that I'm, I'm really good at that, um, you know, are required of the business. And there's other things that I'm really bad at that are required of the business. So I think just going in, realizing that and understanding you're going to need some, a, te- a village to raise a baby. And that really is kind of the, the truest, the truest thing. Cause there's the, the job requires a lot of different organizational skills to, you know, people skills and, a lot of people don't have all of those things. So I think it's important to, you know, try to, you know, think about if you're going to get into this business and do it, it's hard to do it alone. And, um, you know, these are very operationally intense businesses in my, in my opinion, once, once you get past that idea that like, you're just not buying a, uh, a passive investment. And in fact, it's, it's the opera, it's the opposite. If you want to run these well, it's a very, very involved, involved business. So, that's uh, that was certainly a, you know a good learning lesson as well is that you know you can only do so many things and um, takes really a team whether it's on you know from the on-site management side if it's a large enough property to um, you know back of house trying to make sure you're keeping good records and and um, you know run the business uh, as lean as you can. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. How do you all handle the management of your parks? Do you manage those in house? I don't really have a lot of properties, so it's not very hard to manage. You know, we got someone on site and then bookkeep from sort of a centralized location. I think that's, you know, that's going to be how most smaller operators are going to, are going to be able to run it efficiently is, you know, if it's not next to your home and you can't drive to it within a couple hours, you know, I think you need to plan to have someone there because, because things come awry that you need eyes on. And, um, if, if it's, if it's a small thing, you know, plumbing, you can, you can do that. But I just think you, you eventually need some eyes on the ground that can tell you what's going on somewhat quickly and yeah. then keeping track of them and sort of your own internal processes from a more centralized location. Yeah, no, definitely. Coleman, this is, this is one of the most important questions. You know, what would you say are the most important things that passive investors, you know, we're talking limited partners, what are the most important things that they need to look out for when investing into this asset class? Yeah, I think that's a great question because there's, um, you know, I see, I see different funds and, you know, investors raising capital all the time. And you know, I think the biggest things to look at are um, certainly the track record of the sponsor, you know, how, how have they done in terms of their returns and their, um, their sort of bookkeeping and, and, uh, return of capital payments and all those various things that you know LPs want to know about. How is the project going? Uh, how are you know how are the promise returns going? But then also you know I like to look at kind of just the basic deal structures like fees. You know does a does an LP or a GP you know pay fees going on if on the way in? If so, what are those? Be it acquisition, asset management, uh, disposition, refinance. Like what's the fee structure? And then you always, you know, I like to look at, I have, I have some friends that, that build other types of real estate, uh, like self-storage. And, you know, some of the things I look at is like how much money is the sponsor putting in versus the, the partners and 
you know, is that real money or is that coming from, you know, a fee that they're earning on the transaction? So I like to look at the fees on all the deals and then also, you know, the track record at some point, like if I'm not a self storage expert, I'm betting on my buddy who I believe in is, uh, is going to know that business. So I think, you know, conviction that, uh, the sponsor that you're really investing in is, uh, is, is positioned to deliver what, you know, they're going to tell you they're going to do. And of course that's, uh, that's, that's key really at the end of the day. Yeah. And that resonates with a lot of, you know, what our previous guests have said as well is that it, a lot rides on the operator, you know, and, you know, looking at their track record. So what would you say are a few ways to, you know, vet an operator? Yeah, I think, you know, like anything, if you're going to invest some money into someone's deal, you know, ask some questions about the property and why they like it and what the underlying sort of economics of the the transaction are. But, um, you know, that way, at least you're kind of trying to gauge and gain experience into learning the asset class. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a million variables that kind of make up one of these quote unquote deals. And, you know, depending on those variables, there's going to be a lot of different potential pricing scenarios. So, you know, how did you source the deal? Honestly, I would call you up if I was going to invest in your deal and just be like, Hey, what, why do you like this deal? Like what, what about it makes you feel warm and fuzzy that there's, there's money in it for you to be made. So I, I just like to get people's conviction, but, you know, asking about just the mechanics of the deal, why they think it's a good project and, and more importantly, maybe than anything, the location of the property and why that's good. Because I think that we're still in affordable housing and for it to be successful, people have to want to live in that particular area or property. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Coleman, you know, on your brokerage side of things, uh, you know, this is the million dollar question, right? Everybody wants to know how you find your deals. You know, when you're with your listings, you know, since being around since, you know, 2004, you know, what would you say is some of the best ways that you've found uh, listings or found deals? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the best way people, people, especially, you know, in the days of Zoom and the internet, people want to think that they can kind of go in. And sometimes there is a lot of, frankly, a lot of just luck to being the person that calls at the right time. But my strategy was always kind of let me start to farm out a market and look at a geographic area to make it defined. So it's not like I'm looking at a park in every part of the world at any given time. And I kind of went, went that way and pick some geographies or some zip codes. And I really started to study it and do my homework and build out a database of properties in that particular area, figure out who the owners were, who the players were, who was kind of the regional guy, the one-off guy and the bigger guy who was in that area. So then you start to figure out like who's actually here, who's going to be a good candidate for selling and start to work your way up the chain. You know, honestly, uh, just sort of touching base with those owners and understanding where they are at in their investment cycle with that asset and just kind of keeping notes and uh, trying to figure out a methodical way to follow up to be in the right place in the right time. And I think the truth of the matter is that, you know, it's harder to accept than ever with the kind of speed at which life goes today is that like, this is a very slow moving business. A gentleman who I know in the business, who I have a lot of respect for, he told me this business is a turtle business. It moves very, very slowly, but it usually walks uphill. So 
it was good advice in that, you know, someone that owns a property, there's a lot of reasons why they don't want to sell it. And, you know, you have to understand kind of, there's three, three things to do in real estate. It's not that hard. Buy, sell, operate, or refinance. So it's really four. And it's really a slow game that you got to invest a lot of time into, uh, much like much like fishing. I love that. I love that analogy too. Let's peel that back a little bit. So you think that with operators, so first off, the way that you guys are sourcing deals is exactly the same way we do, you know, build a database, do some research. So I love that part. And then building the relationships with the, with the owners. I think that's extremely valuable. So I think a lot of people think they can trick the system with, you know, setting up a pay-per-click campaign or something. And, you know, automatically they're going to start getting leads on, you know, through Google. And it's just a different clientele you're dealing with. They're not, they're not all online, you know, a lot of the older mom and pops. So that's very good advice there. And then in regards to your, your analogy of fishing there, do you fish at all? This is just kind of I, off topic. I, I do. I don't, I don't get to fish as much as I, I used to, but uh, still enjoy it. Try to get out at least several times a year, but uh, you know, it's not cold catching. It's cold fishing, <laughs> you know, real estate in that regard, whether you're a, you know, a buyer or a broker, it's really the baseball analogy as well. Like you're going to get up to the plate and you're going to strike out. You're going to, you know, fail at on certain scenarios, but the end of the day, if you can bat 300, you get into the hall of fame. So yeah, so you got to continue uh, getting up to the plate and taking a cut at it. And, you know, we always talk about amongst our team, you know, there's a lot of other good brokers in this industry. So if we at least got up to the plates, better to strike out swinging than to, you know, be watching from the, from the pine. So keep getting up and at some point, you know, you'll win some business. So that's people yeah. give up very easily these days. And that's, it was definitely the hardest kind of part of the first three to five years in the business was just uh, taking the stomach punches and continuing to try to fare. But if you're, uh, you're sensitive to being told, no, it's, it, you know, may not be the best, best business for you. And, we're all sensitive to telling no at some level, but uh, you gotta gotta keep powering forward and continuing. But I like your your networking and relationship building, and that's that's from all around. You know, from uh, every side of the industry is from you know home manufacturers to brokers to property owners to vendors. You never know kind of where uh, a lead might come from, really. You really don't. And back to your fishing analogy. You know, my wife and I went to the Keys and we went out the one day on a boat uh, around the reef and we started, we put some chum in the water and all these fish came up right to the back of the boat, you know, like little yellowtail snappers. And my wife and I, you know, you, you, you just put your fish, your pole in the water and you pull them right out. And my wife was like, I love this. You know, this, this is like her first time fishing. She's like, I love this. This is amazing. I was like, honey, this is not, this is not how it goes. Typically, you know, this is, this is catching, this is not fishing. So the next day we went trolling where you got, you know, the lines in the water and you're pulling a jig to, you know, catch something a little bit bigger and we caught nothing. We just trolled around for like hours on end. And, uh, that was, that was the last time she went fishing, you know, a few years ago. I don't think I can get her to go back, but you know, to, to, on your point, you know, it's, it's a business that you have to take time and you have to get your hands dirty and you have to, uh, you know, have that consistent follow-up and build the database. And a lot of people just don't take the time to do that. Yeah. It's, I've, I've trolled, I've trolled many days with, uh, in fishing and in real estate without any catching. So yeah, 
Yeah, that's a, a, a big deal. So, so, one, so one good golf shot keeps you coming back for more of those. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Coleman, tell us this. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? You know, I think uh, that's that's a tough question because the truth of the matter is, is there's there's no perfect property. Every property has its uh, little nuances and quirks about it, especially, you know, the older they get in terms of just utility infrastructures. But, um, you know, I think for me, the perfect, the perfect uh, community has to do a lot with kind of housing costs around it. Cause at the end of the day, that's, that's going to be a big indicator on uh, being able to keep that property, property full. So that's one of the things that I think is important to understand and look at is, you know, where competitive housing is in the area. But beyond that, you could have brand new infrastructure, you know, the communities that I'm seeing get built these days. And there's a few of them, you know, new going up in the country was, which is exciting to see, you know, it feels a lot more like a subdivision. So, you know, that modern sort of bigger lot feel is great, but also at the same time, you know, you see a lot of denser, older properties that are full, predominantly single sectional homes. And, you know, there's a, there's a reason that people want to live in, you know, denser kind of in places where they may or may not need a car. So it's, um, it's a tough question, but ultimately uh, minimal underground uh, issues would be, would be ideal in terms of just, you know, antiquated plumbing and sewer, you know, at the end of the day, high, high housing costs is, um, is sort of would be the best thing that I really can look at and, and tell you, you know, where is the property going to stay full? Yeah, both really good points. In regards to the high housing costs, do you have a number that you look for, for like the, you know, the local, you know, average home price, things like that? Yeah, I think that depends truthfully on kind of what your strategy is with the property. Like, you know, we're not all going to have, uh, well, not all the markets that we're going to be investing in are going to be, you know, median home prices of six or $700,000. But I think the biggest thing to look at is kind of what the need for housing in the area is and what your strategy is. Are you going to be buying or trying to bring in new homes? Are you going to be trying to do used homes? Uh, can you access that many used homes? What's your plan with sort of holding it? But, um, you know, if you're going to be new, doing new homes, you know, with where home costs are today, I would want to feel pretty comfortable that you could sell new homes for, you know, $65,000-ish for a 3-2 because with the costs going up, you know, I think that's, that's ultimately where kind of a bigger 3-2 is pricing out right now with the sale needing to happen for it to kind of make, make sense for the operator to do it. It's because, you know, with home prices rising, it, it really, it's really kind of, you know, a 25 or 30% increase on overall cost for new homes right now, which ultimately is going to make used homes go, stay in value or go up in value. But I would say you want to do new, you, you at least want 150, you know, in that market. So you've got some comparable sales advantages, but if there's other reasons, you know, that it's not as high, I think that you can get over that too. If uh, certainly if you're going to do used homes or if there's some other, you know, demand driver in town that that's saying we need housing and the meet, maybe the median home value just hasn't, hasn't gotten there yet. You know, I don't love much below like 50, $60,000 median home prices for stick bill. Cause it just, it starts to get a little bit more difficult to, uh, to sell manufactured housing. Agreed. Agreed. 
common, what common mistakes do new operators make? You know, I made every one of them because it's like I said, it's a hard business, but you know, there's a million mistakes to be made from, you know, underwriting the property initially to doing due diligence on the property. There's a million mistakes to be made. And the truth of the matter is there's always going to be something that was better than you thought and something that was worse than you thought about the property. And as long as you kind of feel decent that with the capital you're allocating, you can fix some of these problems. Um, you're never going to get it a hundred percent, a hundred percent perfect, but really trying to, you know, put in the, the time to understand the numbers, how things are done in that particular market. And then the underground infrastructure is always a big one just because, you know, you can see the abandoned home above the ground that you need to remove or that the, the pavement is in bad shape or that the trees haven't been trimmed in five years and you're going to burn $20,000, you know, trimming on hazardous trees out of the property. But um, you certainly can't see the underground. So just trying to understand what you're encountering there is, uh, is definitely a big one as well. Do you, do you have any tips or do you have any insider information of how to tell if, uh, if old water lines are, you know, going to be a, an issue, you know, how do you, how do you guys test that in due diligence? I am definitely not a plumber. And, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest things you can do is kind of look at the bills and just see, you know, what type of water is, uh, is, is coming, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think the best thing to do would hire a plumber that's familiar with the property and get them on site or find your own third-party vendor to kind of go in there and do those inspections for you. Every buyer is going to have the right to a thorough inspection of the property. And I think, you know, hiring some experts in those fields are probably advisable. Yeah, definitely. Coleman, what hurdles does the MH industry face moving forward, you know, with potential inflation and so forth? Uh, what do you, what do you think is coming? Well, I mean, one of those things is already here in terms of just the price of new homes. In a lot of parts of the parts of the country, you know, you, you can't find a large stock of used homes because the housing costs are so high. So, you know, to fill lots in a lot of places, we need new homes. And those new homes have gone up, you know, 25, 30% in price over the last 12 months. The real question just becomes like, does that come back in ever? Or is it really the new normal? So it'll be interesting to see as, you know, backlogs get worked through and material shortages sort of slow down, where does new home price settle? Or, is, or, or has it settled and it's only going up from here? I wish I had that, uh, that sort of crystal ball. So that's already sort of real in terms of looking at where does it go? So if you've got a really big fill project, or you know a community with a lot of old homes that your plan is to uh, replace or or fill with new, um, you just got a pretty a pretty big uh, you know increase in costs, especially when you factor in the other side of that, which is like the backlog of actually getting homes. So you know potentially more carry costs over that period of time. So those are those are definitely ones that are already already here. Um, ultimately, you know operations, I think is a big thing, you know, new people coming in that don't necessarily know how to operate. Have they, have they funded any reserves for home programs? If they have to, you know, have residents move out and they need to turn those homes. So just feeling like you have some proper operational cushion to, you know, withstand home turnovers or, or anything like that.
but in terms of like pricing, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly aggressive and, you know, outside of a major move in interest rates, like, I just don't see how that's, that's going to change. Um, you know, I read an article this morning on the wall street journal or one of the online's that, you know, they're already seeing rents for single family homes across the country grow between five to 10% in certain markets. And, you know, with that, um, all these different housing costs, I think will come if it's not already happening in a lot of places, rent growth. So, yeah, I think a lot of smaller operators paused kind of rent increases or slowed them during, during the onset of the pandemic. And now with their costs being higher, I think that, that ultimately, you know, that will cause some, some rent growth and we're already seeing in other segments of the real estate market besides manufactured housing. So I only imagine that trickle down is going to happen in our space as well. Yeah, no, very good points there. Tell us a little bit about Sunstone. You know, what, what, what's, what makes you guys different? What's your value proposition? We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So Sunstone, um, really what I think our reputation in the industry has been is that we are, we, we like to pride ourselves to be the best disposition strategy brokers in the industry. And that's from talking about the asset and trying to figure out what's the best way to maximizing value to ultimately trying to execute on the sale and, and deliver value. Um, with that, obviously, we've got to make transactions work with buyers. We try to do our homework on the front end to understand the asset better than just throwing it out there and, and uh, hoping no surprises come up later. Because at the end of the day, we got to figure out uh, you know, a mutually beneficial and or smooth transaction between buyer and seller. And I do think that there's some value sometimes in, in kind of keeping those parties away from each other and uh, managing emotions and also just the process of ultimately going out to bid and figuring out what's the best strategy for this asset. And that's the other, you know, unique part is every asset's different, you know, whether it's the quality of the market, the quality of the infrastructure, the quality of the location, there's all of those different factors that we've got to kind of figure out and manage to think about who's the best buyer for this property that can execute and ultimately, um, you know, get our number for the seller and the buyer at the same time has to feel that, uh, that they're, they're making a buy that's going to be work out for them in the end as well. So that's, that's the fun part of uh, managing that, that sort of two opposite parties going in different directions. Yeah. And after, you know, working on the uh, transactions of eight mobile home parks with you uh, thus far, uh, you know, it's been, it's been great working with you. You bring a lot of knowledge to uh, each transaction. So uh, thank no, you for appreciate that. It. And likewise. And I think, um, you know, that's one thing you guys have done a good job of and, a good recommendation is like you know trying to be a good counterparty and work together to figure out a mutual uh you know a, a solution that's going to be mutually agreeable is is definitely more of a an art than a science and um you know just trying to be open to understanding what the problem is on a fact basis and then working together to figure out you know what's a solution that's going to work for every party is is important to to come into the transaction and i do think there's deal makers and deal breakers. And, um, you know, so far you guys have a, a, uh, you know, good performance of closing with us. So we appreciate the, uh, you know, relationship and sort of working together to figure out some solutions at work. So congrats on those successes for you guys as well. Thank you. Yeah. Here's to, to many more as well. Likewise. Uh, Coleman, how can listeners get a hold of you if, if they would like to do so? 
Yeah, reach out over email. It's Coleman, K-O-L-M-A-N at sunstonerea.com. If you could put your phone number in there, we can set up a time to chat or welcome to Buzz the Office, 312-568-4818. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Coleman. It has been a pleasure. That is it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Andrew, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.